This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. One of the biggest misconceptions of influencer marketing is that using an influencer is just like buying an ad. Pierre-Louis Asayag is the founder and CEO of Tracker, and he knows that there is so much more to it than that. When social commerce is front and center for so many, where a lot of decisions around purchase are taking place online, the notion of being able to not just create that initial spike of awareness, but being able to get people to influence their audience, it gives you an ability to move down the funnel towards nano-influencers. As influencers continue to rise in popularity and the authenticity of the products they're promoting becomes more and more important, aligning brand and promoter is at the forefront of best practices when it comes to influencer marketing. On this episode of Marketing Trends, Pierre-Louis discusses why aligning your brand with the proper influencer can pay huge dividends. Plus, he explains why there is a good chance you're not using influencer marketing to the most of its potential. Enjoy this episode. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, host of Marketing Trends. And today we have special guest, Pierre. How are you? I'm very well. Very happy to be here. I'm an avid listener and uh, I'm uh, delighted to be a guest. Love it. Awesome. Uh, and we appreciate uh, all of our listeners and thanks, thanks for listening. Well, today we have some really fun info for everybody. Obviously, we'll do a little bit about your background and we're going to get super deep into what Tracker is about data-driven influencer marketing, uh, influencer marketing in general. So let's get into it. How did you get started in marketing in the first place? So I, I way back when, and I'm I'm, tr- I'm going to try to to filter my answer, not uh, not to age myself too much in the process. But I, I started way back when in uh, when I was in business school, and the, the first memory of being on the job in marketing was during an internship that I did in Prague, and it was at a time where I was asked to do market research, and there really weren't too many too much data available. I was working for Peugeot Citroën, the, the French car company. And I told my boss a couple of days into the job saying, hey, you know, I, I love the fact that you're, you trust me with this, but there's no, I can't do desk research on this. There's no information available. And he told me, he said, let me show you. He grabbed two foldable chairs. We went for a full day to the busiest crossroad in Prague and we bean counted the number of cars. And it was the first market research that was done in the Czech Republic by the company on figuring out market share for, for Peugeot and for others in the process. And he gave me an appreciation for data and for the different creative ways that one can find to, uh, to source data. So that was my very, very first experience. And, and soon after that, I joined a, a little bit more of a, of a higher tech uh, version of marketing, but started working on market attribution at uh, Procter & Gamble, to cross-channel modeling, et cetera. So I was the, the geek behind the, the models uh, back then. So so it was marketing back then, then I went straight into tech after this. And Tracker that I started about 10 years ago now is actually the, the first time that uh, my marketing craft and my technology craft met again. 
Well, and, and for our listeners who don't know, tell us a little bit about Tracker. Sure. So Tracker is a technology solution that supports brands and marketing services to manage their influencer program start to finish. So by that, I mean that we have an ability to support brands discovering influencers they should be working with because they, they demonstrate some relevancy to their strategy, their brand, their, their category. Uh, an ability to engage with them uh, through their platform and to to manage that relationship over time. And maybe most importantly, an ability to objectively measure the impact that they have on uh, on your business. So it's really a, a start to finish influencer platform. And we've been growing our business at the pace of influencer marketing over the last decade. You know, influencer marketing, it's really one of my favorite topics. I love talking about it. I think it's so fascinating. Can you kind of just walk me through, you know, a decade ago to, to now, where are we at in terms of influencer marketing, in terms of sophistication, how many marketers, uh, you know, out there are using it? I know it's, it depends on, you know, B2B versus mm-hmm. B2C and, and different types of brands, but where are we at? Yeah, so, so you're absolutely right. 10 years ago, it was such a, a vastly different um, era. When we started Tracker, and for that matter, the, the seed of Tracker wasn't even at least it wasn't labeled as influencer marketing. The seed was our obsession with finding accurate signal for content on the social web that me and my co-founder thought was uh, was sorely missing. And we found very quickly that the, the notion of authorship was actually a great proxy to find signal. In other words, if you and I write the exact same post, but you happen to have credibility with a relevant audience on the topic that you're writing about, it will show in the way people engage with your content versus mine and vice versa on a, on a different topic. So, so we found that that impact of a piece of content and authorship were very tightly linked. And that's really how we stumbled on influencer marketing. The next step for us was that brands were really eager to find the people that were leading these conversations online and they had no tools to do this at the time. And so Tracker really started as a search engine for people for authors on the social web that then became known as the influencers. What's happened over time after this is that brands and, and influencers realize that the value of influencer marketing and the impact that these, these individuals could have in online conversations was also a function of the relationship with the brand. And so they, the, the practice started migrating towards the nurturing of these relationships uh, over time and then the nurturing of, uh, at scale which is probably the, the hardest thing to handle is how do you handle scale and how do you, do, do you preserve intimacy in the process? And so, so that's been that pathway over the past, I'd say, t- 10 years or so. And you're absolutely right to notice that it has not been a linear path and nor has it been a path that all uh, companies, all brands, all um, categories and industries have adopted at the same pace at all. I, I would say that in general, what we've noticed over time is that the, the pace of adoption of influencer marketing has been a function of, first and foremost, the industry that you're in. As an example, if you're an industry that is driven by a younger audience where the cutting of the cord has been much more the norm than the, the anomaly, then you tend to move to social media faster than others and as a result, influencer marketing faster than other industries. But it's also been a a function of companies themselves and the type of leadership that they're able to demonstrate uh, when the world is changing around you and you're more of an innovator, an early adopter, or a lagger. 
in that process. And so we've seen that path. The, the thing that is very noticeable for us is if we had this conversation just less than a year ago, you would have asked me, where are we at with influencer marketing? I would have told you there's about a third of companies of brands uh, that have some kind of an influencer program with a strategy that is integrated inside of their business where they've passed the experimentation stage. Then you have another third that is still experimenting with influencer marketing. They spend money, but it's still on the fringe and not widely adopted in the company. And there's a third of company that was not doing anything. Fast forward to COVID. It's been remarkable to see how uh, of an accelerant that crisis has been on everything and especially social marketing and the fact that when you can't do retail marketing when people don't, are stuck at home and spend a lot more time on social media, social marketing has become the core tenant of a marketing strategy. And as a result, it's really accelerated digital transformation and influencer marketing in the process. So we've actually had more conversation with clients on their strategy and how to scale them, how to adopt them on social commerce, on brand purpose and how it relates to influencer marketing than we, we had uh, in the five years prior. So I'd be hard pressed to put numbers on this right now, but maybe if we talk in a few months, I'll tell you that my gut is that we've really accelerated the amount of, you know, maybe five years worth of business in the last six months. That's incredible. Wow. That makes sense to me based off of a lot of the conversations that we've had as well. Any type of digital channels, I think, now have increased spend, increased experimentation. But you, know, you mentioned something about brand purpose. And I would imagine that to find an influencer that fits your brand profile or your brand purpose might be a difficult thing for, you know, for certain companies to figure out. Did you think that these folks kind of had people in mind or had influencers in mind? And then all of a sudden, you know, when their digital agenda was accelerated, then they were like, okay, you know, we've been waiting to, you know, pursue this person, but now let's actually do it. Or now we have the money to do it. Like, you know, admittedly, that's what happened, you know, that we saw from podcasts was like a lot of people who are like thinking about wanting to get involved in podcasts who had been kind of like sitting on the sidelines. They're like, hey, we've wanted to do this for a long time. Then it's like, oh, okay, field marketing budgets, you know, now are, are slash, what, where are we going to reallocate the spend? We saw the exact same thing where it's like, we've always wanted to do this, but we just couldn't really pull money away from something else. And then, you know, boom. So they'd already been thinking about it, but then could kind of take action. So uh, to, to answer your question very directly, I, I really don't believe that there were many companies that were saying, oh, you know, I... I you know, I would love to work with this influencer to demonstrate our, our brand purpose, but, you know, not a priority right now. I think the learning curve has been much, much steeper over the last few months than this. Interesting. And, and again, it, it, there's a, a, a variety of experiences depending on how you enter the crisis. But I would say, at the very least, most brands and most consumer brands for sure entered covid with the idea that at some point in the future, they should figure out how to stand for a set of values that was bigger than them. Some of them have figured it out. They knew what that was, uh, but had not fully enacted it because it felt a little too disruptive, too scary, uh, too much work. A whole lot of companies didn't even know how to spell purpose. And for them, they, they knew that there was a, a need in there, but just felt somewhat protected by where, where they were at the time, where they had like a you know, great uh, line of products and, uh, and they thought it was probably good enough. 
And a handful of companies had already made the leap into living their purpose. And what, what we've seen over the past six months is that the humanization of brands has become a must-have for consumers. We've seen it in, in a way that cannot be overstated in the, in the U.S. with Black Lives Matter. But it's happened elsewhere with other, other topics, but topics of social justice, topics of racism, topics of uh, being environmentally friendly, socially conscious, etc. All these things have come to the front. And the, the pent-up pent up anxiety that people had in context of the crisis has made people react in such strong ways towards brand that were supporting their causes and things that they fundamentally believed in. And ha- we've experienced a cancel culture at full force for others. And so brands have had a, an accelerated learning curve in figuring, trying to figure all this out in really a matter of a few months. And the, the place where influencers come into, come into play on this is really twofold. So for brands that, that have had a program in place, the most advanced brands have had the ability to go to the influencer and say, hey, you know, we enter this crisis of Black Lives Matter. Like, how do you see us fit in this? How can we help? And they've had really interesting, good conversation that span way beyond influencer marketing. They just had a bunch of influential friends that they could talk to that helped them, help guide them into this world that felt very foreign for companies that have bought uh, product first. And then you have those that did not, had not had this, uh, this experience yet and had to do some soul searching on what, what it meant for them to, to become more human, to become more relatable beyond their product. Uh, and they started experimenting quick, but to doing like a really quick turnaround uh, and started then once they found their, their groove, they started spending more time with getting engaged with more credible fo- uh, voices around these topics in order to gain legitimacy. And this is a really a, a, a double-edged sword because you need to walk the talk when you, you engage influencers in, uh, in hot topics like this uh, because your reputation is on the line, but theirs is as well. And so, so it's really been fascinating for us to see how the conversation has been, has been accelerated and elevated in the process of, uh, of this crisis. So then walk me through like one of the, the brands that you're talking about that was trying to figure this stuff out and really had no plans. Like what, what was that? What was that like? What were they, they were coming in and saying, hey, I want to be relevant. They've never done maybe anything really for influencer before. What did they come with you as like kind of a problem set? Is it just like, hey, we want to figure out influencer? Or how'd that look? No, so, so typically, and I'll, some of these brands shall remain nameless in context of this conversation, but I'll, I'll sort of walk you through the, the way it, uh, it panned out. So t- typically, when, d- during, during the crisis, what, uh, what happened is that these brands would start as a first, the first reflex for them when entering COVID, when entering Black Lives Matter, was to scale back influencer marketing and to scale back in general their marketing investment. And the, the reason for this was that they, they would have this, uh, this intuition and, and an accurate one that people were not necessarily interested right now to have the, the brand's products being, being put forward at a time when they're much bigger fish to fry for everybody to worry about. And so that was the, the first reaction. But then what happened, which was really interesting, was that each of these, especially with the larger brands, had some 
initiative somewhere on the side that told the story about the brand that was bigger than its products. And this is where they tended to start focusing their efforts. And so that, that side gig, which was uh, touching on a core value, that, and whether it's a, so it was part of social responsibility or local subsidiary, et cetera, quickly made its way to mainstream. And the brand started experimenting, said, well, you know, this thing really worked. And we saw that people were interested in, uh, in spending more time with us, with our brand around this, uh, this topical area. So these small initiatives started becoming more of a pattern that emerged as uh, sort of some core values that the brand was able to, uh, to put forth. And once that became realized and the brand started looking for new set of influencers to engage with or to engage with the influencers they had in a completely different way, not talking about products, typically also giving up on controlling the content and letting influencers speak with their voice about some, um, some core issues. And we, we found this really, really fascinating to see that uh, that change that, that, that happened it, and because it happened on a dime. And it, that to me, that was the thing that was just uh, the most remarkable in this process. There's still a long way to walk for, for most companies, most brands into really solidifying their, their brand purpose. But there was uh, last month, there was a, a study by KPMG that came out where they interviewed some of the top, uh, top 500 CEOs in the world. And if I recall the, the stats cor- correctly, I think 71% of them mentioned brand purpose as being one of the top priorities uh, in their company, which I, I found the stat fascinating. So if, so like, let's say, you know, marketing trends, we want to go get a, uh, an influencer to promote the podcast, for example. You know, we're, we, we've never done it before. We're trying to figure it out. And we want to go like, you know, we think that, I don't know, Aaron Rodgers is a great fit to promote the podcast because uh, there's a lot of, lot of marketers that, that follow Aaron Rodgers, for example. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, how would we go about trying to figure out something like that? Like, how, where does, you know, spokesperson versus influencer, where do they stop and begin? Obviously, you know, people throw around the term micro-influencer. There's all sorts of different things. Like, how... Do these all live in the same universe, in the same world? How, how, would, how would that look? Yeah, so there are many different flavors of, uh, of influencers and different types that people will engage in, in different ways as a result. There are some, so as, as a very simple example, journalists and analysts are very influential, but there are very specific uh, way with which you can engage with a journalist without really jeopardizing their profession and their credibility, which might be different that you'd engage with a customer or a celebrity, et cetera. So there are very many different types of, of influential voices. The way, if we were to have this conversation on how, how you guys would, uh, would engage with you, so the, the way I would approach it, the way I would engage with you is to say, well, Instead of starting with a name, let's start with what it is that you're trying to, to do. So first of all, let's understand what it is that makes your podcast special versus the other marketing podcasts. What is it that you stand for? What are the, some of the core tenets of the message that you're trying to convey as a mosaic of all the interviews that you're conducting? And what does it look like? What's the, the vision that you have for, for this? That's number one. Number two, who are you trying to reach? And... A podcast towards uh, 
business people in general, startup people versus global CMOs will be, will be somewhat different. So you want to make sure that the, the people that you end up working with share a vision of where you're headed that is close enough to yours that you can have a meaningful conversation and an audience that is already baked in and built that is highly relevant to who you're trying to achieve, to, to what you're trying to do. So instead of thinking about, you know, this person and the reach that they, that they have, it's much more, you know, okay, you know, they may have 500,000 followers on Instagram or Twitter, et cetera, but how many of them are relevant to you is really where the, the conversation ought to be. And then when it comes to engaging with them, the very simple rule in successful influencer, uh, influencer relationship development is to look at this like dating. So we do not... Uh, start a conversation by asking someone for marriage. So get, getting in touch with somebody and asking them to be your spokesperson is a sure way to make sure that you go sideways. Instead, let's figure out ways to do a few things together, starting with a simple conversation and see whether or not there's a meeting of the mind between you and uh, an influencer or a series of influencers. And if they don't think that they're fit, they may actually have somebody in mind themselves that uh, could be a, a good match for, for you as well. So it's really uh, a dating game. And what we're seeing in our platform through the data is that as the influencer and the brand get closer together and talking about your podcast on their channels becomes more of a of an known and expected attribute of that person's feed, the impact that it has on their audience becomes greater because it feels more authentic because it is. And so, so this is really sort of a, a sort of a diesel engine type of, uh, of uh, development, but that's really what works is the, is the development of that relationship over time with relevant influencers that with whom you have some, some core values that you, that you share that really help you and help them build credibility, build your audience further. To keep kind of the sports analogy going a little bit, I've kind of always wondered with how influencers work. If you're talking like celebrity influencers, and if you were to say like, and I, I guess I don't know all the rules around this, but if you were to say, I want to go sponsor every one of the Green Bay Packers uh, players, or not everyone, but let's just say like the top five or six or something like that, you know, and Aaron Rodgers versus being like a sponsor of like the Green Bay Packers team and the stadium and things like that, which is like presumably extremely expensive or comparatively, it could be a lot more expensive. It just seems like there's so many more options now with influencer now that folks like that have their own channels, they have, you know, social media channels. But the question is like, you know, if again, if, if let's say it was a perfect fit that the Packers and, uh, and marketing trends are aligned on all this stuff. And that our audience, extreme correlation for some reason, uh, for Packers and, uh, and, and marketing, marketing trends, super fans, hopefully. Okay. In that kind of scenario, like it seems like there are ways to set up a bunch of different influencer relationships that could eclipse something that traditionally would have been really expensive. You take, for example, like, you know, how much money State Farm you know, pays in, in advertisements to have, you know, Aaron Rodgers and then also all of the, the like ridiculous amounts of, uh, of, you know, TV spots that they run on the NFL season to try to get to the scale that they want versus like going at it a little, at it a little bit more tactically. Now, the thing that seems to me 
it would just be way more work to set up all of those influencer campaigns and potentially, you know, it's just a lot more time and effort that might not be, you know, the juice might not be worth the squeeze. Like, what do you see on your platform when people take this digital approach, take an influencer approach? Is that replacing like traditional media? Is that replacing um, some of those things or how do they look at it? So it's a great question. It really depends on the level of, of maturity of the brands that we work with. With the ones that started investing in influencer marketing two, three, four, five years ago and have accumulated enough data and knowledge about their brand, the way they engage with influencers, we're starting to see a migration of traditional media dollars move towards influencer marketing at an accelerated pace. And it's, it's actually quite remarkable to see that it, in, in some cases, in some industries, uh, like in, uh, in beauty, for example, you'll find that influencer spend is higher than traditional media. Which sounds crazy, but that's the majority of the marketing spend today. So it's already happening. The way in which it's happening is, is really a function of what the brand is trying to do. So for, for brands that don't have a huge reach and they know that they, they found a niche audience that, they, that seems to be well aligned with, uh, with theirs and what they want is to step up their reach. The notion of going towards people that are more of a, of a celebrity type influencer with a wide audience that is relevant to them makes sense. They will, they will pay a fair amount of money in the process, not nearly as much as they would pay in traditional media, but uh, it's worthwhile. And these partnerships typically tend to, to work well for, for a period of time. Bear in mind that you're, there are very few exclusive deals uh, with influencers like, like this, and so they, they're also courted by many other brands. But they, they tend to work, to work pretty well for awareness. And if you were to try to build awareness with much smaller influencers, then yes, there's a, a huge amount of work and lift that would go towards it that one would question whether or not it's worth it. But this is also by no means the only reason why brands engage with influencers. What you'll find is that when you're trying to, to move uh, further down the marketing funnel, towards consideration, towards purchase, different cohorts of influencers may not have as big of a reach, but they actually have much more of an influence on their audience doing something. And so at the time as today, when social commerce is front and center for so many, where a lot of decisions around, uh, around purchase are, are taking place online, the notion of being able to not just create that initial spike of awareness with most celebrity type influencers, but being able to just get people to influence their audience into doing something that they would not otherwise, just definition of influence, it makes you, uh, gives you an ability to move down the funnel towards sort of mid-tier influencers, towards nano influencers. When you, but then you have a very specific ask and the ask is not for them to generate hundreds of millions of views on our, our, our eyeballs on your behalf, but rather maybe hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of purchases, as an example. You know, one of the, one of the great campaigns that's out right now um, is the McDonald's-Travis Scott partnership. And this is like, you know, I'm very curious to see how it ends out. But, you know, just looking at it from the outside, think of the difference between saying Travis Scott loves McDonald's versus 
you can buy Travis Scott's meal. Like this is the meal that we created for him at McDonald's because it's his favorite. Like that positioning is such a lower funnel positioning, right? It's like one is like, oh, Travis Scott and McDonald's doing cool stuff together. And then you take that like 10 degrees further to like, no, this is Travis Scott's meal. There's also merchandise that, you know, we're going to have his stuff on the, you know, on the shirts that people wear to work. There's also, and those are getting sold online for like hundreds of dollars, all this sort of stuff. You take someone who's just a superstar celebrity that is extremely, you know, hot and relevant in the press, you know, and then you kind of get towards that actual buying decision. I can't, yeah. And then they can, they can just track like, how many Travis Scott meals did we sell at the end of this campaign? Like, yeah. uh, it's, a, it's, it's funny to see Apple and Nike and McDonald's and some of the like premier A plus brands that year over year over year for the past, you know, 40 years have used influencers and celebrities in their marketing all the time, right? As a core tenant to their strategy. Yeah. So it makes sense that smaller brands that have smaller, more niche audiences can find those type of people, you know, for that. But like you said, you have to kind of gear towards, is this awareness? Are we trying to drive a little bit more uh, action? Absolutely. And what, what, what's interesting with some of the brands that you mentioned, and you could, you could throw um, Unilever in the mix for that on the, and the brand like Dove, for example, that has done influencer marketing for a long period of time and has, has used it. So it would be true of Dove, it would be true of Nike that's been just genius with their, uh, with their strategy there that has used it in the in context of, of furthering their brand purpose. So if, you're, if you look at the, the Copernic uh, campaign that started two years ago and continues to this day with Nike, what's really interesting now is that there's enough data that has come in that demonstrates that beyond generating the next purchase on behalf of the brand, what they're building is lifelong advocates, loyal advocates for the brand. Because if you live and breathe a brand and you agree with something really important to you that the brand stands for, the data shows that there's less sensitivity on pricing and there's much more loyalty towards the brand because they talk to you at a different level than uh, the, the, the product itself. And so, so what you're saying applies to McDonald's and to, to specific campaigns, but there's, there's almost a meta level to this, that once you're able to cling that spot where if you are for social justice, you cannot not buy Nike. That's how they've managed to, to create that association. And it's very powerful. And I, and I bet you that margins are better as a result. That growth is better as a result because they have a groundswell of loyal customers that they've been able to build in the process. And then you have a brand like L'Oreal that I know you all have worked with um, for a while that has, you know, influencers in 150 plus countries, over 34 brands, you know, 30,000 plus influencers. I mean, you're talking about someone who is at the very far, you know, right of the cutting edge, you know, mastering influencer, you know, you've been working them with them for a while. How does that, you know, type of company, how are they able to figure out how to do this so well? So the success does not happen in one day, right? And so to your point, they've been at this for a long time. The, the thing that I, I've always found remarkable in, uh, in that company, L'Oreal, is that when we first started working with them, they had just 
sort of won the, the battle of the, the dominance of, uh, of beauty, the beauty category. I think they, they had at the time 24, 25% global market share, which is incredible. And yet they were not resting. They understood that for a lot of their brands, the audience was getting younger and younger. And so the traditional TV ads that they had been relying on weren't working as well. And so they started investing, investing in influencer marketing, but investing also in the digital native brands that they acquired over time. And so, so that success was a slow buildup that I would argue is probably still going to this day uh, because they have, just, they have, I think, 30 and some brands in the, in the U.S., but globally they have over 70 brands. And so 70 brands times, I don't know, 150 markets, the scale of these practices is immense. The thing with companies that achieve that level of maturity for, for an influencer program is that there's a point where soon enough it stops being a channel and it becomes a, a way of life for the marketing department and something that affects just about everything that you do. So where your content is in part influencer generated, where your ads are also in part influencer generated. And yes, you're still using social channels and the influencer voices, et cetera. But this is really a foundation of your marketing, much more than a foundation of your influencer marketing, so to speak. Yeah, that's a great point that it's like uh, having an understanding of digital leads you to have a really clear understanding of, of influencer and where it fits in. That's a great point. Absolutely. Are there some common misconceptions that, that companies have about influencer marketing? So I, I would say pr- probably the sort of the, the other side of the coin of what I just, uh, I just mentioned. The main misconception of, of influencer marketing is to treat it like, like another media channel. And it creates all kinds of side effects and that typically end in someone senior in a company saying, well, this influencer marketing thing is not working. And they're right in the way in which they implemented it. It's not working. It's not working because the brands approached influencers by cutting a check. And usually it's happening through an agency. So they don't even have a direct relationship or contact with the, the influencer. They will dictate the content that the influencer ought to post, to post on, their, on their channels. And uh, I don't know if you remember this from a couple of years back, but one of the, the Kardashians actually made the mistake of posting back the brief alongside what I think they were supposed to post. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Which gave, gave everybody a good chuckle. But so to, to me, the, the thing that does not work with, uh, with influencer marketing and the, the misconception is this is just a new channel. And the, the minute you start thinking about it this way, you're just not recognizing both the complexity and richness that is uh, within the practice. And as a result, you're, you become lazy in your investment in time and personnel and too quick to sign uh, checks to influencers that really are not going to move the needle for you because nobody believes that they actually truly endorse the thing that you say they do. Yeah. So to, to me, it's at that level, that's probably the, the biggest misconception for, for influencer marketing. And th- there's a bunch of others, but typically it's just, it's the, the slow learning cycle that, that brands just need to, uh, to learn. For a lot of them though, it's not so much of a misconception, but it's a huge challenge is that in companies that have invested primarily in agencies first, where they've outsourced most of their marketing capability, uh, and really the marketing department is, and I, and I used to be one of these guys, so I know, 
is a bunch of project managers for the agencies. It's just really hard to do things right because you don't have the, the, the learning cycles, the learning loops are much longer. The incentive system with uh, the agencies are not traditionally aligned. Your KPIs are not as well integrated. So it just makes that learning phase so much more cumbersome than it is if you invest some resources internally to lead your program rather than completely externalize it. So that, that's one of the things that we've, we've seen and learned over time. It doesn't mean that agencies don't have a place, quite the opposite. Uh, and we see that with our most mature clients, they're also the biggest cons uh, consumers of uh, agency hours, but not by, by virtue of externalizing their thinking. You and I spoke a little bit before this about the idea of like oversimplification being a huge problem. Can you kind of just share more about that? Yes. So in general, let me see how to, to position this. But the, the thing that I've noticed in, uh, in marketing from, for the, the past 10 years, and, and I've lived a different version of it, is that we tend to try to, to connect every new thing to a familiar model or uh, whether it's a, it's a KPI or a workflow that we know how to handle. But the, typically where we come short is that when we do this, we also fail to recognize the richness and complexity of, uh, of a, new, a new practice. And I'll give you a very specific example so that I'm not, uh, I'm not talking abstractly on this. The notion of, uh, of EMV for a long time when it comes to influencer marketing, so earn media value, had been a standard that was established, again, a long time ago. It's just an, a cost equivalency of how much you would have paid for a social ad for that very same post. You just gave me, you gave me a shiver down my spine thinking <laughs> of earned media value. I absolutely lo loathe the phrase. So I'm with you there. And so, and, but this was like the, the core KPI for that matter. There are some companies that were posting this and might still do today on the annual report to demonstrate the value of influencer marketing. And what's funny is that EMV is, uh, was not new. The reason why it felt comfortable is because it, it came from PR. It was AVE, PR, Advert Value Value Equivalent, that was debunked by the PR, most, by most in the PR industry in the 2000s. But the challenge is that the minute you start installing a, a, a metric like this and just tie success to it, you end up doing all the wrong things, all the wrong things. And so for the past 10 years, Tracker had been fighting with our clients to say, hey, there's much more to this. And so we ended up creating our own, our own index over time. Now it's, it's, uh, it's been adopted, but it's, it's something that is much richer, much more transparent than the, the traditional EMV. And the funny part about this is that after 10 years, we're coming back to EMV, but with a, a very specific purpose. So you were mentioning the, the, the migration of media dollars towards influencer marketing. This is the only place where EMV has a home is the minute you, you're trying to compare how much should I spend in TV ads, digital ads, influencer marketing, and I need a unit. So you need to have that dollar equivalency on spend, but that's nothing else but the dollar equivalency on spend. Let's not talk about value or impact. This is somewhat irrelevant, is when you're trying to split your budget across different practices, you need to speak a, a unified language. And so we brought back EMV, but with a very laser-focused goal behind it. And I, I found it fascinating that we, we, did, not, uh, we did not take the, the shortcuts 
to tout the value that was just not there. We tried to work backwards from what our clients needed in order to make better decisions. But what, what I find in marketing often is that as marketers, we, we tend to, to be impatient, to spring into action. And it leads us into overlooking some important steps when it comes to immersing ourselves with data, trying to understand them, turn them into insights, and figuring out the right plans are because we just want to do something. And if there's something that doesn't feel achievable at first uh, because it's too complicated, then we're going to go and take a shortcut and do something that is much simpler to implement, even if we lose the value of the very thing we're trying to do in the first place. So that's what I mean by oversimplification. And it's, uh, it's been my, uh, my uh, Don Quixote's uh, uh, windmill fight for, for a decade now. I love it. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, it reminds me of like unstructured data versus structured data, right? Where you're like, you get, you know, these, these, new, uh, these new organizations or these, you know, new companies that have the ability to help you, you know, make sense of, of your data by not kind of making assumptions, right? And you just say like, what are the actual insights here versus trying to say like, hey, let's test for this kind of similar sort of thing with a lot of these campaigns where it's like, we're trying to use old metrics or old, old things to, to gauge new campaigns with new technologies. And it's just not a one-to-one fit. You're absolutely right. And the, the, the irony of all this, and I'll, I'll give you now examples of, uh, we work with a ton of, uh, of global groups that typically work on a whole bunch of different markets worldwide and have many brands that they associate to this. So the, the notion for them to build out a structured program around influencer marketing feels completely overwhelming because it's so complicated. There's so many groups, so many people, they work differently, et cetera. But this is an argument that you can flip on its head and say, you have 30 brands, you work in 100 markets. So technically, you have 3,000 experiments that you can run at the same time, which means that you can, you can learn 3,000 times faster than a brand that is only in one market and has only this one brand. And so that, that, uh, that liability that brands feel they have that, that comes with the, the, the complexity of managing a global group can really be turned on its head by just saying, no, let's think about this the right way. You can learn so much faster than the next guy simply because of the complexity of your organization if done the right way. And so my point is embrace the complexity. It's okay. It doesn't mean you need to do it all at once, but let's acknowledge it. And then let's scope the work that you can, you can handle and just start going at the pace that you feel comfortable with. So what's next for Tracker? So let's say what, what's next for Tracker is really what's next for, for influencer marketing. Because um, what we've done over the, the past uh, 10 years or so is really to evolve our platform, our services, to document in code where the industry was going next. So we've been trying to stay ahead of the industry somewhere between six months to a year in offering new capability, in, uh, in really supporting from a technical standpoint, the practices that were nascent. And where we see the, the next frontier that will be a, a big leap for, for everyone is in this notion of starting to bring visibility across an organization. So I was mentioning earlier that once you reach a certain level of maturity with influencer marketing, it's something that infuses 
your marketing uh, actions really across the board. And it's, it, it, it affects your PR, it affects your own media, your website, your social media, your paid media, et cetera. But in order to be able to gain that 360 view on your practice of influencer marketing, you need to be able to have some handshakes across systems that you're using because Tracker is not a do-it-all platform. We do one thing and we do it really well. It's to support an influencer marketing program. And so we, we see in our future a lot more collaboration with adjacent platforms to ours, adjacent technologies, in order to provide the marketer a unified experience in order to, to be able to strategize better and to take actions faster and more effectively. Okay, let's get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. Just like marketing with Salesforce, you can go to salesforce.com slash marketing to learn more. Salesforce has been here since the very beginning of marketing trends. If you're not a customer, if you haven't checked them out, go check them out. We're influencers here for Salesforce and we, uh, we love them and use them. Go to salesforce.com slash marketing, check them out. Lightning round questions. Pierre, are you ready? Let's go. Do you have a favorite book or podcast you've been checking out recently? So if, if, I, if I mention yours, then I'm in trouble. So uh, I'll, I'll say... I mean, you can mention it all you want. Uh, <laughs> it's been done already. So let's say that the next one that I've, uh, I've become addicted to is The, the Pivot with uh, Kara, uh, Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. Do you have a hobby or habit that you picked up in Shelter in Place? Uh, I've become an amazing uh, teaching assistant for my kids. <laughs> nice. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's a really good one. Do you have something that you're going to do when, uh, when we're on the other side of, of COVID, maybe a favorite restaurant or a, or a vacation or something that you're planning? I'll give you my, uh, my top three. I already have a list. It's uh, Hawaii, more precisely Maui. And actually, if you want to go more in, the, in detail, Hana in Maui is my first destination after we're done with, uh, with COVID. The second thing is uh, to resume playing basketball. I'm an avid uh, player and, uh, and fan, and I just can't stand just uh, not doing this. It just makes me cranky. And the third thing is to go visit my family back in Europe. Is there a campaign that you've seen recently that you're jealous of or think is particularly wonderful? So I, I, I mentioned that I've, I've really grown in admiration of uh, everything that Nike has been doing. And to me, the, the thing that, uh, that I found most remarkable with, uh, with them lately is the speed with which they've been able to release new uh, digital ad and content that sort of supported the, the underlying thesis. So the, the, the speed of their marketing, I'm, I'm really in awe with. If you weren't in marketing, what do you think you'd be doing? Uh, so if I, if I were a food taller, I'd, be prob- I'd probably be a professional basketball player. <laughs> uh, but, but that not being an option... I've always been a, a, a tech aficionado and working in tech, so I'll probably be doing, doing something else in tech. What's your best advice for a first-time CEO? Fail fast and uh, trust your gut. I love it. And these, and these two things are compatible. Pierre, that's it. That's all we got for today. Thanks so much for stopping by. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? No, I'm excited. Thank you for the conversation. It was great. Yeah, it was awesome having you. And, and I should say, uh, you all have a great... Um, Tracker State of Influence 2020, hashtag unprecedented, which is a, a cool download that we can link up in the show notes That's uh, that everybody should check out. Awesome. I'll, I'll pass on the compliments. Thank you. Take care. All right. Take care, Ian. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. 
Discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM, Salesforce. Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Automate engagement with each customer and build your marketing strategy around the entire customer journey. Salesforce, we bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.